Welcome to The Saga Continues, the official companion podcast to the Hulu original series Wu-Tang and American Saga. I'm your host, King Tech, and on this episode, I'm talking to Wu-Tang Clan's leader, the Abbot, the RZA, about the beginnings of the Wu-Tang Clan. Then stay tuned as Alex C., the show co-creator, joins in as we talk about the jewel of hip-hop history, the unknown instrument that changed the game. I'm talking about the SB-1200. If you haven't seen episode one, can it be all so simple? Consider this your spoiler alert. You can catch a series over on Hulu and follow along with each episode. Let's get into this. This is The Saga Continues, where we discuss everything that happened in Wu-Tang and American Saga, now streaming on Hulu. I'm your host, King Tech. Today, I'm sitting with one of my closest hip-hop allies in the game. I call him the OG, the Resurrector, the Bobby Diggs, or whatever, man, whatever you know him as, man. Bobby Digital. Bong, bong. Um, one of my favorite people on planet Earth, man, I could say for sure, man, because this brother has been through... Uh, millions of episodes with us through our uh, long career of swaying King Tech, the Wake Up Show, and once I just want to congratulate you, brother, on this this series that you got on uh, Hulu right now. Bong bong, uh, yo. The episodes that I've seen, man, it's you know I, I, I've been talking to people about it, uh, RZA, and it's not really just even though it's your life story, it's a lot of hip hop life stories. Like when I interviewed um, Crooked. It was his life story on Long Beach. Right. When you talk about uh, Swain King Tech, it was it was our life story in the Bay Area. Right. It's a lot of people's story, man. And um, so again, man, um, how uh, you know going back? Because I, I, you know, I want to start so the fans could get the right answers from you. How was this thing first developed in your mind, and how did it take off? How did it become in fruition? Oh well, let's talk about you know episode one. You know. The audience is introduced to Bobby. Okay. They're introduced to this kid with a dream. Um, and uh, like you said, many of us in hip hop have this same dream. You know, it starts off it's just a dream to get the proper equipment mm -hmm. to make the music that you have inside of you. Mm -hmm. And um, for us at that time, it was that SP 1200. And to get a hold of that was like, getting a hold of uh, the the Holy Grail, you know what right, I mean? Because right, that right. was like, that was the answer, you know. Before the SB1200, as you notice in the show, you know, it was two turntables and a four track, and you would just have to keep scratching and beat back and forth, back and forth until you got about three or four minutes on your four track, and then, you know, you would overdub some other sound effects from wherever you want to pull them from. And then lastly, you got a track or maybe a track or two for your uh, MC. Really, for the way I was producing before the SB1200, I would have the 90901 track so I could have some kicks and some hi-hats. I would have the, the turntable spinning back and forth on the track, another track for sound effects, and then one track for the MCs. And the funny thing, then you may have to bounce it down to a track and then come back exactly. to add more. Then you kept losing quality. Right. The SB1200 was a machine that looped the beat perfectly, so you never had to stop, rewind, try it again. And getting a hold of that was, uh, 
I guess it was like, in the, if you was think of a magic movie, it was like the, it was getting a hold of that magic sword, yo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? The slay the dragon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, when did you first think of who was going to play the young you? And how did that even come about? Like, how do, how do you go in your mind like, okay, now I'm going to do this series. Now we got to find the guy <laughs> that kind of looks like me, talks like me, walks like me, because you're... you're you're so famous, man. You can't just have anybody playing you. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, that, that was a, I mean, that's the tricky part, right? To be objective about somebody playing me. But the thing that I know as a creative, you know, I, I direct movies and I write movies and things like that. So I have a, like a certain type of, of a mental approach to art. Okay. And I know that to me that's directing movies and writing movies is not the kid that was in that basement. He hasn't evolved yet. And so I have to be conscious to find an actor who had the talent but yet had the the eyes, right? Or mm-hmm. the you know, who kind of embodied the spirit of someone who has not fully evolved yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Aston Sanders was that character. And I, I would have overlooked him in all reality, right? Because, you know, he's darker than me, right? So, mm-hmm. but it wasn't about the physical appearance. Um, I saw him in the film uh, Equalizer Part Two. Okay. And when I saw that film, me and my wife watched it, and he stood out in that film to us. We was like, oh, that kid. Mm-hmm. And when he had the argument with Denzel Washington about, you know, is he going to... Ch- you know, choose to be a drug dealer or the get the gun. Yeah, in the lobby. Yeah. That was a great scene. And right. and I felt like, wow, that's a scene that and a and something that so many young people go through, right? right? And he handled it so well. But I still didn't see him playing Bobby, right? Right. But his name came up, you know, you know, you you know, when you're looking for an actor, you may go through a hundred names. And when his name came up this time, I was like, wait, where do I know this kid from? I just, I feel like, and then I got on the plane. This is funny, right? I get on the plane, head to New York, and now I'm down to about 10 names, and he's one of the 10. And I love the movie Equalizer, too, so I watch it again, right? right, right, right. <laughs> you know, on the plane, yeah, yeah. you get to watch three movies. I chose to watch it again. Right. But this time I realized, oh, wow, that's the kid who's up for the role. Right. Bung. You know what? Let's bring him in. And we brought him in and we sat and we talked. And we didn't even tell him which character. Just talked to him and looked at him and stared at him. You know, mm-hmm. that's the funny thing about, you know, casting. It's like looking, you know, it's Was like- it go- freaking him out? Like you guys just-, just Yeah, yeah me, and, me and my partner, Alex, <laughs> uh, we, you know, my co-creator, we just sat there looked at him and talked. And Alex has a very unique way of interviewing people. And I got a unique way. So it's, we have this yin and yang thing that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And when he left the uh, office, we was like, yo, I like this kid. Yeah, I like him too. Well, who, you, who do you like him as? I said, yo, to tell you the truth, his eyes remind me of like the innocent eyes that, that people said I had when I was a kid. Right. You know what I mean? Those that innocent eyes, you know, even though I don't have them now, I don't think I don't know. Right. <laughs> I wear shades. But anyway, he had those eyes, and it was those eyes that led to us uh casting him as Bobby Diggs. And I think he did an incredible job. Now in the in the series, your brother Divine P 
picks on you a lot for not hitting the streets like the way they want you to. Yeah, that was so wanted, yeah. And you put on headphones a lot, and I just I noticed that you're 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 like I think music is your escape yeah. in, in 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 reality. Um, or, or out of reality, I don't know, man, because it seemed like you were under a lot of pressure to follow your your. I don't know if it was calling following your brother's footsteps or, you know, can, can you explain that, man? Like, what did they want from you when you were that young? What what was your goal at that moment? Well, look, you know, in the nineties in New York City, you know, survival is the goal. You mm. know what I mean? You know, you could check. Our other peers in hip hop, and you'll hear, you know, Survival of the Fittest, right? A song by Mob Deep. Why? Because that's the goal of a young 18, 19 year old young man in the city of New York. Right. Uh, and, you know, a single mother home is where we dwelled in. And the things we wanted, you know, our mother couldn't afford. Our mother couldn't afford to pay the rent. Mm. And so, Survival. Mm. And my brother Devon uh, played by. Played by Elijah, we oh, we call him Julian. <laughs> anyway, play you know, well he he did a great job uh, uh, as the actor because he captured the idea of a big brother telling his little brother, "Look, man, it's cool to have dreams, mm-hmm. but the food on the table is real, the clothes on your back, the rent that's due, you know." Mm-hmm. That's real. And 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 Bobby at that age, he already sees that there could be another way, Devon. And he and he and and uh you know he expresses that. So look, how many of us, even today, when we're not really in sync or what's going on in our surroundings, we put our headphones on and we mm-hmm. we zone the world out, you know? It's like going to the gym, right? You may put your headphones on and zone out all the other customers so you can focus on yourself. And I think, um, you know, Bobby, young Bobby, uh, that was his way, you know. And for me, you know, even more than, you know, putting those headphones on, as as we show in episode one, I think going down to that basement, going down to where those turntables were at, Mm. Going out to where those comic books and those crates of records, video games and kung fu movies, that was his own world, you know, and that's where he felt the most comfortable. And after, you know, you'll watch throughout the episode, that's where he ends up at after he goes through some type of trauma. You know, in my book and a lot of um, hip hop fans, we consider you top five producers of all time. In my book, you're number one. You know, but there's a lot of people that debate for different things. Um, When I watched episode one, you know, you're kind of known for the dirty sound coming back to hip hop because in the 90s, it was it was getting polished up with um, Heavy D and the boys um, and all that stuff. It was getting clean. It was getting clean. And, you know, Dr. Dre had a sound. It was clean, clean, clean. And. You came out with a kind of a dirty sound. I mean, it was. It, I'm, I got to ask you: Was it somewhat accidental, or was it on purpose? Or because it's hard to figure. Even when you watch <laughs> the show, I can't tell. Like, do you want it? Well, a, you, you look. If you look at the character and you look at his journey, right? And he's, you know, 
got those old 45s on his turntable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at his equipment. You look at his room, his surroundings, where, the places that he frequent. Mm-hmm. You know, New York has a dirty sound about it. Even in all this glitz and glamour and all of us, you know, being the Empire State and, but where, uh, where Bobby is at at this age is in the grits of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's cold outside trying to sell crack, yo. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's dangerous outside as well. Right. And then when you go inside your crib, you know, you're sleeping in the basement. It's colder. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. It's, and, and, and life is real. It ain't like, uh, you know, he not singing, yo. You know what I mean? So he's not feeling that vibe. It's more like the, the dirtiness is a reflection of the environment. A reflection of the the temperament, um, you know. You look at the character Dennis, you know, comes over. They smoke their blunts <laughs> in the basement, and right. and you know, violence is 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 all around them. The sound is a really a product of the environment, and you know, if I could look at myself now. I think I've cleaned up some of my sound. I, I do orchestra. Scores for movies, right? Oh, definitely. The second album, it was right. so, totally different. Yeah. So, 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 because of the chance, I think that of more that you see. Mm. So I didn't only just see the dirt in life. You know, what I mean, I had a chance to see other things, and so. But our character, you know, in episode one, he sits right there, and you know, in the midst of that mud. But there's one other thing I think that's important about this episode that I also think was important in my life and important in uh, in the development of 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 Bobby Diggs. Let's just say I don't mind talking about him in the third person. <laughs> and the most important thing you were not RZA yet. Is that correct? Nah, nowhere near. Nowhere near RZA. Okay, he's he's nowhere near RZA. You know, he has to he has to evolve, but. You notice in episode one, we, uh, we, we take the detour to go down south and we watch um, the, young, the young Bobby there with his Uncle Hollis. I think it's that time with Uncle Hollis that gave Bobby the optimism that he had when he got back to New York. Because Uncle Hollis was a doctor, okay? Being a black doctor in the early 70s with his own practice. Wow. Uh, he had his own clinic. He, he was a farmer that had uh, maybe like 600 acres of land. And this is in the 70s. Wow. And How did he possess all this? He was a doctor. Work? He was a hard, hard work, work, a hard work, work doctor, studying, uh, you know, surgeon. Yo, this, man was, this man was a very highly intelligent man. Um, and uh, he um, he was able, I think, that time with him was able to give Bobby a glimpse of life doesn't have to be stuck in, stuck stuck in a shack, right? You know what I mean? Life doesn't have to be uh, so closed. You know, you're looking at driving past 100 acres of land, and that belongs to your family or something like that. That's a different type of inspiration. And I think Bobby never lost that inspiration. And, you know, Uncle Hollis gives Bobby some of the most important uh, lessons of his life. Uh, and we use it, we use uh, 
we use a part of it inside the uh, episode one when his uncle tells him, uh, you know, your imagination could be your greatest weapon. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That stuck with you? Yeah, it stuck with me. Because, yo, I was scared of the dark. I don't know, like, you know, I'm not a shy, I'm not shy to say that, yo, the dark? Nah, I didn't like that. You know what I mean? I like right. to sleep with the lights on. And that wasn't allowed. But I thought something was in the closet, yo. But when you're a kid, you're away from home. Right. You know what I mean? So I could imagine how orphans feel. I could imagine how uh, homeless feel, young homeless or people in shelters. But this this kid, you know, at least he had a loving uncle, but, you know, he had a very chastising aunt. So right? it's a balance of uh, <laughs> yeah, love and hate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think when his uncle told him that it's all just part of your imagination right. and you could use it to help you, that never, never, never left my mind. And, uh, and I hope that if any young kids watches uh, this episode, that it sparks them the way it sparked me. How big of a role do you think Uncle Hollis played in your life, man? I mean, this is some, this is new information that I've known you for a long time, and we've never we did one shot together on BET, and I know we were in North Carolina. You're like, I'm gonna go see some family, and I'm like, right. in North Carolina, right. and then we see the episode, and we're like, oh, you actually. So he, he thought it, he thought I was going to see some chick, huh? Yeah, I was like, yo, he, he's no. like, hey, man, he's got a family out here. But yeah, I was going to ask you, man. So it's what percentage of if you had to put it in perspective, he seemed like he played a pretty big part in yeah, Uncle Hollis, who you who you are. Yeah, Uncle Hollis played a, a major part in and 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 me developing myself as a human being, as a person, um, as a really as a I would say the as a reader. Like he told me to read. He's like, keep reading. You know what I mean? And he had books f- about everything. So let me ask you, kids that are, that are hearing this, that now nobody's reading. Everybody's YouTube. Everybody's looking. What's the difference in your opinion about if it, reading versus YouTube or well, videos? Well, look, I do think YouTube distills the knowledge, right? Because you could Google and you could find anything you want. Right. But the imagination that accompanies reading is different. So you could read Jack and the Beanstalk, right? And whoever Jack is, is who you see him as. Mm-hmm. So you could see Jack as being yourself, your cousin, your brother, or some being with wings, whatever. You, your mind would, would tell you that. The giant could be a big giant, you know what I mean, that's the size of the Twin Towers, or it could be just a giant that's the size 40 feet high. Like your, when you read your imagination, has to fulfill in the blanks. But when you're watching something and you're seeing it, the blanks has been filled in for you. Mm-hmm. So if you think right about right. us who, who always, you know, we read, you know, we used to read, the, my uncle made me read the Bible a lot. Right. That's one of his first books he gave me was the children Bible stories. And I would read about, you know, Job and, and Solomon and Abraham uh, and, 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 you know, you know, I could keep, I could name all the prophets, but I would read about these prophets, right? And and I had imagination of who they were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Moses, you know, because it's all this, you know, all little stories and not a lot of pictures. But then when I watched Ten Commandments, the movie, which I love, right? Sisu's movie was incredible, and Charleston Heston did a and remarkable job. Mm-hmm. I know I'm talking, people don't, this is an old movie, brother, but anyway. Yeah, I know the movie, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. but now, every time I think of Moses, I'm seeing this guy. 
Right. You see? Yeah. And now the splitting of the Red Sea is literal. It wasn't until Ridley Scott did a version of, of the, of the, of the uh, movie that for this generation, when you could see that, okay, maybe it was just a strong wind working in his favor that day. Oh, right, right, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Yeah. So those things are important. Reading, I think, will give you more pure form of the information because your imagination will accompany you. So Uncle Hollis was pushing you to read for this reason? Or I mean, he just, it was accidentally you kind of just like, he was like, no, he Kids, no. start reading. He always said read. That's how he became a doctor. You got to study to be a, to be a doctor. You can't just wake yeah. up and be a doctor and get <laughs> right, a, a right. degree. I mean, right. especially and back then, you know, remember, if, if he's a doctor, you know, that means he had to go through the 60s and 70s, yo. Hell. Okay? Yeah. And, and you can't even, down south. Okay, so you can't really get to the water fountain. Yeah. All right? So you could imagine the things he had to put up with and go right. through to right. get that PhD. So is he like the father figure in your life? Or he, yeah, he was the first father figure in my life, yo. Um, you know, I met him at a young age. Uh, you know, um, you know, my, my family was separated, you know, and he became that father figure. And, uh, and Now, I, you, you, did you meet your dad after? You knew your dad before you went yeah. to? Uh, North- you remember in the scene, in the, in the show, we have the scene where... Uh, where uh, Bobby's mother in the kitchen, and you see the angry, the angry, the yeah. angry man destroying everything. Yeah, so that was one of my, you know, memories of my father, and, and me and my father are tight. I love my father. He's a, he's a, he's, I mean, I understand a lot about myself because of my father. Right. Uh, he has a very, very unique personality. He's a very upright man. Uh, the things him and my mother went through is something you could never understand as a kid until you get married and you right. go through your own life. You know what I mean? Right. But. He definitely broke out. <laughs> okay, that's right. an actual fact. Right. And, you know, he left that family there. And that family just, you know, had the wither. And Uncle Hollis came to the aid. He he was able to take, you know, take now, me Now, why down. did your mom just send you and not the other siblings? Well, well she explained it. You know, we explained that in the, um, in the show, you know. Um, you know, everybody can't go, you know. But he, you know, Uncle Hollis... And I know we're talking a lot about him, but he was a, you know, he would have took everybody, put it that way. Wow. Because, right. yeah, to come to find out, you know, I had some cousins, like he actually had like saved a lot of children. Okay. You know what I mean? He was really a good, a good hearted man. You know what I mean? My other aunt could have been in trouble and he allowed her son to, 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 to raise their, you know. And we do the same thing in, in, in our way now, you know, when some, when some young people were in trouble, we 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 will send them out to the farm in Ohio, or you know, you know, you know, something to help them get away sometime from the city life to see something different, right. and that and that worked for me. You know, um, one of the things I love about the show, man, is we get to understand a little bit about Staten Island. And when you grow up, you know, in California or Texas or Montana, when you hear these New York rap records in the '80s, nobody was talking about Staten Island. It was <laughs> it was it was the the Five boroughs, and, and then Rakim came with uh, Long Island, this and this and that. How was it different growing up in Staten Island for you, man? Did you feel like you were kind of trapped on this island? Was it is it easy to get in, 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 off of the island, or is it just uh, no, it's not, only with a ferry? It, no, it's not easy to No, if you don't got no car, right. yeah, you got to take the boat, kid. There's right. no train 
That's what I'm saying. There's the no Island. trains. There's no, there's train, no train from Manhattan to Staten Island. Okay? Still or as still. I mean, no. There's only. I mean, there's a bus that'll take you over the Verrazano Bridge, right. and you got to go to back in those days. You got to kind of go through New York to get on that bus, and right. going to New York is not wasn't wise back then. But um, no, no. Staten Island commute is a ferry, and um, and you know, a lot of us don't even like to ride that ferry. That's a guaranteed thirty minute ride, you know. But right. um, but Staten Island still was developing its own style of hip hop. What do you mean? Can you explain that? What what was the style of hip hop that that was being created? Well, the thing I think that makes Staten Island unique in hip hop is that a lot of people from the other boroughs migrated to Staten Island, right? So, so, you know, like from the Wu-Tang, as far as being born on Staten Island, I think Ghostface was born on Staten Island. Right, that's why he, he's the most Staten Island MC in the world. Right, you know what I mean. Um, but a lot of us migrated to Staten Island, so Inspector Deck migrated from the Bronx. You know what I mean? As a, as a kid, though. But I'm just saying. Right. Um, so it was, it was one of those like it wasn't the Long Island suburb or nothing like that. It was it was like a project migration. But the projects like Park Hill. It's not city-owned projects. It's a project, but it's like a privately-owned project. Stapleton is city-owned. So Staten Island had that mixture of private-owned projects and city-owned projects. And so if you think about a private-owned project, you could say if you go to Brooklyn, a place like Linden Plaza, right, mm. which ODB lived in. So Linden Plaza, you know, the people that work for transit, Bus drivers, they, they got jobs. They'll be living in Linden Plaza. The people, the majority of the people living in pink houses, which is right across the street from Linden Plaza, will probably be more of very custodial working or welfare uh, working. You know, just people that their income probably didn't exceed you know ten, twelve thousand dollars a year. Mm. That that's the that's the difference. But in Staten Island, you know, even. Uh, in the projects, you know, like Park Hill, there, there was a balance of, I would say, working moms and, and welfare moms as well. You know what I mean? And, and, and many projects have that balance, but, you know, you're not making over $10,000 a year. And I think even less than that, I, I recall back in those days, brother, not to get too deep on it, but mm. I think the average salary, uh, you know, the average income for a for, for a black family could have been six to seven thousand dollars a year. You know what I mean? If you was poor, which we were, you're talking about five grand a year to feed the whole household. And, you know, so 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 anyways, so Staten Island developed its own hip hop because it had a different migration of people there. And then, as I said in uh the Dow of Wool. Anything that's isolated. That's your book, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we based a lot of the show off the Dial of Wool. Let's let's uh let's uh put that out there. Okay. You know, we you know, um this show came about because, you know, when I wrote the book, it was read by Brian Grazer. And he thought that this would make a great TV series. And we pursued it and here it is. It's, here it is in the flesh. And but but I, I remember uh, you telling me, man, you were on a movie set when the book came out, and I forget which actor you said 
went and bought like hundreds of books and started passing it out to the cast because it was that dope. Oh, that was uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah, Russell Crowe bought a thousand copies of my book. And he. Uh, what movie was this? Were you, um, that was American um, Gangster? No, we, it was uh, after we did American Gangster. The mo- there was, uh, I was on the set of a movie called The Next Three Days. So that was another movie he did with Paul Haggis. And I had a small role in where I came in. I only had three days to shoot, but my schedule was kind of, you know, three days. What did so, you do in the, in the, was it a studio scene or what, what was it? No, 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 I beat him up with a bat. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's why I took the role, you know what I mean? That, but, but, he, but he loved the book that much, he yeah. bought a thousand copies. Yeah, he bought a thousand copies. He actually told me, he was like, yo, uh, if, if I was you, I wouldn't do nothing else but promote this book, he said, because it's so healthy and so helpful. He said, you need to go on Oprah with this book, Bobby. And I was like, I didn't really, like I didn't write it for fame. You know what I mean? My heart was ready to share my story with the world. Right. Uh, it's not easy to share your story, especially when you're talking about, you know, family breaking up and going out south to live with your uncle. Right. And, you know, my father was hurt when he read the book because, you know, you know, we as in, in our community, you know, we keep things to ourselves. You know what right. I mean? Right. Um, but the only way somebody going to avoid the traps and pitfalls of life is somebody else left a map. Right. And so the Dao Wu. Now, was he hurt map. because he, he thought you, you did not portray him correctly, or was he hurt that, damn, this guy just put all our business out there? Yeah, yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just like, yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like about the betrayal, it was like how he was portrayed. It was just like, you know, that was a, 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 a tender, sensitive moment in life. Right. You know, that's now being shared with the world. And, you know, it's all good. And we talked about it, you know, it's all good. You know, it's like, I didn't even know you remembered. I said, yeah, I, I, you can't forget something like that, Dad. But, um, yes, but, yeah, so anyway, Russell Crowe bought a thousand copies. He gave it to his rugby team. He gave it to other uh, people in Hollywood. And he just passed it out. He just, he just really thought it was a great book. And right. he thought a lot of people should have it. And it ended up in some good hands. So, yeah, Rizzo, one of my favorite things uh, about you guys was the uniqueness of this whole clan, the Wu-Tang clan, the crew. was just a weird different name at the time. I'm watching a series, I'm watching episode one, and I see Shaolin versus Wu-Tang in the series. Now, I got to ask you, as a Wu-Tang fan, how did you decide on which name to go with? It seemed like you could have went with either name, Shaolin (laughs) or Wu-Tang, right? That's that's a good question, but no, you couldn't just go with either name. Okay. Because, you know, Shaolin versus Wu-Tang is a movie that came out after 36 Chambers. And Wu-Tang comes from Shaolin. So the Wu-Tang techniques was first developed in Shaolin, and then uh, he was expelled, right? right? And then he went to the Wu Mountain and developed his own technique, and then came back like, I'm the best, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, but when I was thinking about coming with... Uh, you know, who are we going to be? Shaolin is the home of, of all Kung Fu. Ah, got it. So, But the Wu-Tang are the dudes who left and traveled the world and, and, and perfected Kung Fu. Got you. You know what I mean? So so that's how we came with that's That was one of the reasons why. So we call Staten Island Shaolin. That's our home. Right. You know what I mean? And many MCs or techniques may come out of Shaolin, but we're the Wu-Tang clan, which is the best, even... 
you know, if you watch the movie Shaolin versus Wu Tang, he right. went back right. and fought the Shaolin monks and like. You know, he's like, I may have been expelled, but I'm still the best. <laughs> like, now, they kicked him out, but he still was the best fighter, yo. <laughs> How long did it take for you to get these Staten Island cats to understand what the name was going to be? Because I, I can't imagine this being an easy sell on <laughs> look, uh, hood cats that are like, what you want to call a group, bro? Like, what? <laughs> well, look, well, that's the beauty of this journey, right? You know, we opened up episode one with um, you first hear, you know, a beat being developed, and right. then you hear this kung fu movie playing in the background. Right. And then Bobby kind of hears how the kung fu sounds kind of could match with the beat. There's right. a rhythm to it. Right. Right? And we see that he's watching Shaolin versus Wu-Tang. Right. And at this time, we don't know what he's going to do with it, and nor does he. And then when you go to uh, Dennis's house, his brother's watching Crying Freeman, which is an animation. And for all the Wolf fans out there, you know, that's the uh, intro to Ghostface, uh, uh, one of the intros to Ghostface albums, uh, Iron Man, uh, to, to a song called Fish. That's the intro. And it's, he's, so, 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 we're, so everything that we're absorbing is becoming part of our being and eventually becomes part of our music. What I like about um, how we was able to craft this story together, right? Um, I like that we was able to actually get celestial pictures to let us use the footage from the real movie. You know what I mean? We was able to get the real animation and use it from the real people. And that's, uh, it was not easy, but we did it. And we want to thank celestial pictures. But that movie, you know, was one of those films that really resonated not just with Bobby, right? But it resonated with Asan. It resonated with Dennis. You know. Yeah, that's the next yeah, question so. I was going to ask you, um, Riza. In episode one, so who who do we get to meet uh, in episode one? Who are some of the characters that are going to be introduced in episode one? Well, look, Tag. You know, episode one. Uh, you know, just aired today, and I think it's a great entry into what the series is going to bring us. You know, you you get to meet Bobby. You get to meet Asan, who everybody loves. You you know, right. you get to meet Dennis, who's you know, who's going to have to evolve to Ghostface, and you get to meet Shotgun, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that you know that you know met the man. You know, his name was Shotgun. You know, so that's what his pops called him, and and he uh, you know um, worked at the Statue of Liberty, and he was an assistant manager, which means he was a hard worker. You don't get to become the assistant manager slacking, you know what I mean? Right. But you also see that he's sitting there, he's writing his lyrics. When you meet Bobby, you see him, you know, breaking day, writing lyrics, making beats. So this dedication to music, art, uh, this dedication to, you know, trying to, to you know, fulfill a dream, uh, we could see it in episode one that is in most of our characters, right? Um, but, the, but one funny thing, that I think different between Bobby and the other characters is that he is not dream only dreaming it. He's trying to walk and mm -hmm. pursue the dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so in the scene where he asks Divine for two thousand dollars right. for uh, the buy SP twelve hundred, and Divine's like two thousand dollars. You crazy? That's like three months rent in all reality. You know what right, I mean? Right, and he's right. trying to save up so he could get this brick of 
cocaine, right? Because right, right. you know, back in those days, you get a brick, baby. You was rolling. You was rolling. About to get, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and everybody's out there hustling towards that brick, including Bobby. But at the same time, he drifts. He drifts. You know, he right. he stops by the chess player. He wants to play chess. He wants right. to go to Sam Mass. Right. He wants to hang right. out in the music store. Right. You know, what I mean? he wants to go in the basement. You know, and 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 and, and DJ and, and things of that nature. So, but he is pursuing his dream. But the funny thing about it, which I I love how how we was able to capture it. You know, Chris Robinson. Uh, I want to take my hat off to Chris Robinson. A really good director and a good guy and a guy who really understood the material. Because, you know, when Bobby comes and asks Devon for the, you know, $2,000, you know, you know, Devon not only says no, but he embarrasses him in front of the other guys, right? He's like, who got $2,000 from my brother? Then Dennis just say, what? For, for a beat machine? Right, right, right. And then a song like, a song like oh, you, you a drum machine? I'm the human beatbox. Right, I can do it right now. <laughs> and he hits the beatbox and he right. busts a lyric. And you know what? That's how it was. Yeah. A song would bust a beat anywhere. Dennis, you know, D Lover, back in the days, his right. name was D Lover. I know right. he hates when I say that shit. Right, he, right, but right. Back in his name was D Lover. He'll bust a lyric like that. And yo, you can make tapes like that. Right. But Bobby saw not just making tapes, he saw that maybe we can make records. We can make something different, something better. Right. These demos would get to a level right. that could take us out of here. Right. And like uh, Devon said, look, the beatbox only costs you a 40 ounce. <laughs> you right, know what I right, mean? Right, right, So, uh, but anyway, I love how how Chris captured us. He captured Staten Island, you know, he put that camera in front of Stapleton. He put the camera in front of Park Hill. You know, we went to the actual sites where we all grew up at. Right. And, uh, and um, he, you know, he, you know, he brought out some crazy gadgets. You know, it wasn't easy to throw the Russian arm on top of another vehicle and do a, a uh, 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 MPV driving through the projects, yo. Right. You know what I mean? You right. know that's like, you know that was a, a brave shot. Uh, we got, we got to thank the city of New York Housing Authority for allowing us to to do that shot because right. you know it's you know a lot you know it's a lot of crowd control and a lot of getting people out the way so that this car could drive, um, you know, through the city. I mean, through the projects. Right. And uh, I want to thank my our transportation guys. Let's talk about transportation, right? If you notice. Is that car speeding? Every car that it passes is a 1988 or 1990 car. Oh yeah, you so, gotta get the right cars. Yeah, our production designer Scott Murphy did a great job. Of course, the, my my partner Alex C. You know, me and him sat there for months writing these. You know, writing this story and you know writing the screenplay and making sure that incredible that man it captures everything. You know, it's incredible. Once again, Rizzo, man, congratulations to you and the world of hip-hop needed this, brother. Uh, I know we've been praising you for years for doing the right thing and keeping hip-hop alive, and you're one of the characters that hip-hop needs. Um, I know I've talked to uh, King Crooked many a times, and he's like, man, you know, I, I, th those guys, the Wu-Tang guys, gave us energy on the West Coast. Wow. As a matter of fact, when you came to the West Coast, you started the Black Knights or what was the name of the little oh, yeah. cast from Long yeah. Beach. Yeah. So you've always given love to every area you were in. And again, my man, shall I shake your hand? Congratulations uh, on this, man. And uh, I can't wait to see the rest of the episodes, man. You know? Respect, yo. Bong, bong. Come back. Watch episode two, three, and the surprise happens in episode four. There it is. <laughs> Wu-Tang and American Saga, man. The one and only. The Resurrector. The, the OG. The, the, my, my, my friend. I can call this guy my friend. Hey, hold on, hold on, hold on.
We got Alex C, the showrunner, the co-writer, co-producer, co-everything, man. Let me get you the mic. Early in my lane, what the fuck is going on? I just said peace to RZA real quick, man. We got a few minutes left, man. I want to ask you a few questions, man. Are you uh, technically inclined on to talk about uh, the SB 1200, man? Let's, let's, <laughs> let's break it down. The jewel of hip-hop history, the SB 1200. This is a tough question. If you didn't have one, man, it's going to be tough for you to answer this, man. No, I mean, I'm very aware of the SB 1200 in terms of its place in hip-hop history and how much it's been referenced in rap, so I became familiar uh, with what it is through that, but like... Um, just doing this process and working with Brizza, it's always like a pleasure, even if I don't understand it all, to hear him go down the fucking rabbit hole of equipment, right? And when, he's right. T- when he talks about the SP-12, I mean, like when he talking about equipment, whether it's the emu or, I, I mean, like his eyes, there's just a glint in his eyes. And so we try to, and, you know, especially that's what we tried to replicate in this episode, you know, because it was like, you know, like at a certain point, like a holy grail for him. Do you right. know what I mean? Like, right. man, if I got that, you know what I mean? Like, and he, he and, he, and uh, he was just, he said that shit changed the game. And it's just, it's, it was really funny going down, you know, and him, you know, when you talk about stuff, he actually wants to educate you. No, see, because when you do this, this is like three seconds. And I'm like, I'm, and I'm just like lost in the fucking sauce. But like, right. I just love the passion and the passion he still has. And, and even, um, like around the corner from our writers' room, there's like a fucking secret music store. Because we, me and the writers, we used to walk by that. Because when we had these offices, he's like, "I know this place. Like, this, there's like a secret music store here." And we're like, "Me and the writers are looking at each other. What the fuck? Secret fuck, music no. store? We're like, what the fuck is this? And you got to knock twice. It's the RZA. Swear to God, it's the RZA, bro. You, I'm no bullshitting. Like, we go, we can go walk there. I'll, I'll show you. It's like a fucking door. And we, me and the writers, we would walk to get a cup of coffee. You know, uh, take a little break. And then one time we seen. A woman, like the door was open, and you could, we saw we we could peek in. We're like, oh shit! And you see all this like fucking handmade fucking equipment, bro. I swear to God, this handmade fucking equipment, like you know, or like or like custom equipment, or like. And we go, hey, can we come in? And she just goes, no. And like she's like, no, no, no. Like, oh shit, you know what I mean? Like she was a little more polite than that, but it was like, no, no, you you can't come in, right? And uh, I was in the office. Then like weeks later, I was in in the office with RZA, and we had time to kill and he's like hey you want to go to the music store i'm like yes i would <laughs> yes, and bro we go there and i swear to god but he called it he like i think he texted ahead and then it, it was basically the equivalent of the fucking secret knock that you just did and then the, that same woman opens the door it's like hey what's up and he's like i go come in and come in bobby and there was like there's like a like a, a, a some like technicians from like you ukraine or some shit like they had vented some kind of keyboard and he just walks in and like he know without seeing shit, he knows how this shit works. He's like, oh, okay, so this does this and this it, it is just crazy. And this, I swear to God, this secret music fucking place, the equipment is crazy. And just to see him just like look at it like, oh, and I know how this works. Boom, 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 boom. And so, you know, you know, bringing it back to the fundamentals, SP 1200, it's just, it was a treat for me, you know, right. and, and important for us to put that in the show, see the man work. And, you know, just to see also the other end now, now he's a RZA, but like he's looking at equipment, like he's super passionate about it, super like explaining shit to me. Man, dude, I got to tell you, man, RZA, RZA, so uh, uh, I got a call from him, uh, I, was, I think it was around 98 or 99 after the second album. He's like, Tech, I need, um, you're from the Bay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know any record stores? 
Yeah, he's like, dude, I'm going to send a limo, pick you up, man. We're going to catch a flight to the bay, and we're just going to go uh, record shopping. You want to go today? He's like, yeah, today, man. We're just, we're just going to go. We just catch a flight. We just go, right? So we landed in San Francisco airport. He got about 30000 cash in his pocket, and there's a limo driver that, you know, just standing there. He goes, hey, buddy, how much are you for today? It's 1000 bucks. He hands him 1000 He goes, well, we need you to drive all around San Francisco. So I start, you know, San Bruno has one down, to, you know, Hay Street has one. So we should start going through San Francisco, right? And like you said, man, he is picking up records that he knows so fast. It was like one, two, three, four. Give me that one, that one, that one. And I forgot who the guy that he brought with us, man, that was like his basically the box carrier. And we were filling up boxes and boxes and boxes per store. Like he was like 5,000 a store, basically. And then by the by the end of the day, the limo was full of records. A couple of months later, man, I'm doing the uh, wake up show with Sway. He goes, "Yeah, we're in a studio in North Hollywood, man. Just just come through, and you know the crew's there. They, they, you know the clan's there." We stop by, and they go, "Hey, man, you got you got any new new tracks for us? You want to play?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll play you guys something." And Alex, man, for a good forty minutes, this dude was playing some of the most bangingest tracks that nobody's ever heard to this day. I don't know, wow. and I don't know what the machine was that he had, but obviously, see, the SP-1200 could only hold 10 seconds, and you had this floppy disk, you had to keep changing. So pretty much you made a song with those 10 seconds, and you changed the floppy. Whatever machine he had now, he had upgraded it where it could hold an hour. God damn, man. Yeah. So it was like... You know, uh, Ray Khan was like, what else you got? And he'd be like, oh, 2273, boom. I was like, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> right? And you see all the Wu-Tang looking at each other. He's like, ah, before I could even finish, I, I don't like that one. I, I, two, two, <laughs> 298, let me put it. Boom. And I'm like, one hour, dude, we were just sitting there holding our scratch in our heads. Like, bro, how many beats do you got? Does this guy even sleep, man? Yeah. You know, so uh, you're absolutely right, man. When it comes to equipment, and I know he's sponsored by, I, I, mean, I didn't get a chance to ask him all this, man, but he is sponsored by damn near everybody. Oh, you know, right, and right, I right. figure, look, man, when you get to his level, Dr. Dre level, rest in peace, Jay Dilla's level, whatever, I, of course these music companies want to hand you their gear to go, hey, man, can you flip this? Can you tweak this? So, I, you know, you know, so I don't know, man. I'm just I'm glad you brought the SP1200 up, man, because I, I I think that was one of the pieces of of uh, hip hop history that changed everything because everybody had ideas on what to do. Yeah, but one second of sampling time on a record just wasn't going to do it. Yeah, and God bless the cast that came, you know, before us that yeah, Ultra Magnetic MCs have figured out how to sample a kick and snare and make records out of it and all that stuff, but. That 10 seconds opened up the doors for uh, DJ Premier, yep. uh, DJ Muggs, Cypress Hill, um, you know, Wu-Tang Clan. So that one piece of equipment, and I sold mine to uh, this guy named Dan Charnas, man, who put that put out the book called The Big Payback. It's like a historical hip-hop oh, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, he came by one day, and they were just sitting there. He's like, thank you. You still want it? I was like, nah, how much you want for like 1500 bucks? I paid two Gs. Bro, you know how much an SP twelve hundred goes for right now? How much? Six thousand dollars on eBay. So you know when we filmed, we we got his original one. 
We got Rizzo's original one who that he given to someone. Really? You just gave that to someone? He was like, I gave it to him a long time ago. What you? And and we had two. So um, the his one that he used, I think, was the one uh, Ashton Sanders, the actor who plays him, practiced right. on. Right. Right. And it's just like, you almost like, bro, that should be in a museum. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know what I mean? But it, it belongs to someone else now. Right. But it's the SP-1200 that he created all this shit with. It's, it, it existed. And I didn't, what I was super ignorant about uh, in terms of when we filmed the show, I didn't realize it was really difficult to go get one. It is. Nobody I, wants to part with them. Yeah, it was just crazy. It was kind of a thing where it was like, well, where's the SP-1200? Right. It's like, right. and, you know, our props guy was just like, it's not that easy and it's going to cost us. That's why we actually had to go track down because um, we needed two. We want one to shoot with, obviously, and then right. the other one uh, right. was for Ashton to practice with. Right. So we needed two, and I like that's why we had to actually hunt down. Is like finally, was like, fuck, you know, let me go hunt down mine, <laughs> and then we had to hunt down where it was, and then it was there. It was in the that had to be a, like a funny look, man. Y'all should have did a background documentary. <laughs> that was like the FBI showing up right after years of not talking to this dude. This dude probably had this SP twelve for like twenty. His kid probably opened the door. It's like. <laughs> it's like I'm here to give my SP twelve hundred back. The kid is like, "Excuse me, yeah, yeah. what is it? Like, your dad got my shit from twenty years ago. I want it back." And the kid's like, "Dad, yeah, I think the Riz is outside. Wants <laughs> his shit back." Yeah, no, it was just crazy. Yeah, I was. I, I I didn't realize like that it would be as difficult as it was. You know, to go get. Yeah, and it was it was a whole thing. Well, uh, listen, man, I need you for episode two. Yeah. So sure. we don't want to get too deep into this right now, man. Um, I am DJ King Tech. Look, man, Alex, can we can we, uh, can we we get you on episode two? Uh, according to my contract, I think I'm fucking obligated. Oh, right? let me look at the contract. <laughs> let me look at the contract. All right, man. Let me see. Oh, my God. You got, the, you got the, this fee plus this fee. <laughs> Plus yeah. this fee. Well, it's my rider. Basically, man, it says you will do the show for free, but you have to have a $100,000 bus outside. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah, a good scam, yeah, brother. Yeah. Hey, I like that, man. I, I like that. I need a DJ Khaled bus. DJ Khaled bus, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to see you, or I'm just saying, I'm sorry, hear you Yes. on episode two. Absolutely, brother. Alex C. Alex C. One of the showrunners, man. Show and the producers. And the producers. And the producers.